In the first week of the series, we talked about the first part of the answer in the letter. The sermon was titled, The Long Rescue, and that's what we saw in chapter 10. The rescue that Jesus has begun, the author says, is going to take a while. But as we wait, as people who've been rescued, as we wait on that rescue to, to continue and on that work to complete, there's actually stuff for us to do as there would be if you were the first person I remember saying it would be like if you were on a, a ship that sank and there are a thousand people in the water and you're one of the first ten to get pulled out. Like, sure, at first you're just trying to make sure you're okay, but at some point you're standing around and there are two things that letter says that you can do. Number one, you can actually take advantage of the relationship with God that this whole rescue has opened the door for. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have your relationship with God restored if then you don't do anything to pursue that relationship. And then second, you can look around at all the other people who are getting pulled out of the water and try to figure out how to serve them better. Because this place you're at, this like life raft or whatever the metaphor is going to be, this is a place where everybody that's coming in needs to know that they can feel safe and that they can belong. Which is a way of saying both 2,000 years ago into us now, that the first order of business for a church is that a church must be a place of belonging. And then last week, we looked at the long discussion of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we were reminded that our long rescue is also a long race, which means that we have work to do in the meantime here. We aren't called to just trust Jesus once and then go on living the way that we always have. We're called to place our whole selves increasingly, our whole lives increasingly in trust of the God who we've come to, to realize faithfully does the stuff that He says He's going to do every time. And we can trust more in Him little by little by little when we feel doubts, which are fine to have, which we all have, we can press into those doubts, lean into those doubts even, and find real hope in the endurance of those who came before us and who never saw the things that they had put their trust in come to happen, come to be. And even more, we can contribute our own stories into something, into that narrative, so that the people behind us can place and find hope as well. That our perseverance in the faith adds to this great cloud of witnesses of faithful people that become the source of, in, of, of inspiration and encouragement for those that come after. Which is to say, then, that a church, in addition to being a place of belonging, is also a place where our beliefs are meant to deepen and to grow. And those of you who, like, pay attention in the lobby, you know where this is headed already, right? The church is a place where we belong. The church is a place where we grow in our beliefs. And sure enough, this week, as you must be expecting, we're going to be talking about what changes in us as we grow in our relationship with God, as we serve our neighbors, as we press into our questions and our doubts. And what happens is we become little by little by little by little who and what we are made to be. In fact, that's an anchor in the very work Jesus is and has been doing for 2,000 years. The church, what the Bible calls Jesus' bride, is becoming, is becoming this harbinger 
of his kingdom is becoming this 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 body of people who give a real taste of who God is to the world around them. Is that a long road? <laughs> yeah, it is. 2,000 years and counting. Is it, okay, is it okay for us to feel beaten down sometimes because of how hard this can be? Yeah, it is. But is God actually moving and working right now, not just arbitrarily in the world as a whole, but is He actually working in the, in the lives of human beings who He's empowering to share good news and to be good news to other human beings around them? Yeah, He is. You bet He is. So, why Unshakable for the series? Because the author of Hebrews knows that folks are feeling pretty shaken. They know that folks are feeling pretty shaken. And he or she wants to say to them, peace be with you, God, the God you trust, is and will forever be trustworthy. That's why you spend ten chapters making sure that the people can see how the Jesus story satisfies this long history, the longing of this long history for a Messiah. And the cool thing well, as you, as you can tell, right, like the cool thing is even in that letter, we're working through these same three core values for the ancient church that are on our signs in our lobby because our work is no different. We're still that church, still trying to live out those principles of belonging and believing and becoming. But the question is always, always the question is how? How do we do any of that? How? It's one thing to say that here in the church we are changing, that here in the church we are becoming. But what does that look like? What does it feel like? How do you participate in it? How do you celebrate it when it's happening? So, let's look at chapter 12, right? Here's how chapter 12 begins. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? The book of Proverbs says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children for what children are not disciplined by their father? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I feel the mood in the room darken as we read through this passage. This is where things get a bit thorny, I think and tough for us, particularly as modern readers, right? Because our cultural context is significantly different from the context the author is referring to here by way of analogy for their readers. But the challenge, I think, is to take a step back for a second from ourselves, from our context, and to try to take the text on its own terms. And I think if you can do that, even if it's hard work, you're going to find something pretty interesting. Because what is the author saying? 
he or she is saying this. They're saying that the hardships that the early church is enduring are absolutely not God's punishment on them for doing something wrong. And that matters. Because even 2,000 years later, I think we pretty much almost always tend to think that when we endure hardship, it's because we've done something wrong. And they're saying right here at the beginning, that's not what your hardships are. Rather, the hardships you're enduring are a form of discipline. So don't be afraid when you encounter them. Instead, look for how you can grow in the midst of them. Okay, that may be a little better, but it's still pretty tough, right? Why is this tough for us? I'll speak for myself. It's tough for me to talk about this because I, for one, do not like to think about discipline in terms of pain and violence. It troubles me to think about, to think that the suffering in my life, the rejection by the world around me, even actual grief or or not being able to put food on the table, that these might be things that God is doing in order to teach me something. That can be very dangerous, I think, and it can be very hurtful. It can be a very hurtful way of trying to make sense of how the world is. There is much, much suffering that we endure in this life that is simply the result of living in an unjust and sometimes cruel world full stop, right? And as somebody, myself, who, who would never discipline my child by inflicting arbitrary pain on them, I don't want to think that God would do that to me either. But again, I think we have to step back to what the alternative might be that the author is addressing. If folks are worried that their suffering is a sign of God's displeasure with them, the author is trying to say, trying to help them understand that this isn't right at all, that it might even be a sign of God's commitment to you. And that, I think, is something worth holding on to. His concern for your growth and change. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness, the text says. The aim for the author here, the aim for the church, the aim also for us, should always be set on being increasingly aligned with who and what God has made us to be. Sometimes hardships can do that work. Sometimes comforts can do that work too. But the goal goal, and this is where I think we're going to kind of turn here. The goal is not to avoid suffering. The goal is to be holy. I think as comfortable, as uncomfortable rather, as it might be to say it, it is a good idea for us to sit with that, to wrestle with that just a little bit. Is it possible, hear me, is it possible that we sometimes choose to avoid hardships as one way of avoiding change. I'll ask that again because I want us to sit with it. Do we sometimes choose to avoid hardships as a way of avoiding change?
Maybe for you, that's dodging a hard conversation with somebody that you know is going to confront you about something. Maybe it's not texting back, ghosting. Maybe it's less internal than that, right? Maybe you can sense that the work you do for a living is damaging to other people. It's far from the kind of kingdom work that you once dreamed of doing when you were younger, but you're allowing your financial fears to keep you from stepping away from it. Maybe that's not how you would describe your job, but it's how you would describe a relationship that you're in. You're avoiding the hardship of confrontation in order to avoid, in order to avoid having to push for or agree to any changes. But maybe I'm making a mistake by trying to tell you how to interpret the question. The question is more powerful if we just leave it open. Are you avoiding a hardship in order to keep from having to change? I think what makes that way of phrasing the question challenging, at least for me, is that it steers me away from the aspects of discipline that I already know how to dismiss. Because it's not about how I respond to stuff that God is doing to me. Instead, it's about how I withdraw from the stuff that God is trying to do for me. And thinking about this message on, on God's discipline and on change and on becoming, I spent a lot of time this week wandering around Johnson City, Tennessee, <laughs> late at night and asking myself, how have you ever changed? And what did it? When have you grown or matured, Kenny, or to use the word from the text here, become even a tiny bit more holy? What did it? And the best answer I could come up with is that the thing that has consistently prompted the most change in my character and in my life is the constant presence of people who believed I could do better. It has never once been the criticism of those who already think I'm awful. It's the constant presence of those who have hope for me. My mom and dad, Meredith, my friend Graham, once upon a time, my friend Jonathan, my fellow English teachers, once upon a time, Josh, the planting pastor here, more than a few of you, if I'm honest. I'm pushed to change when people believe in me and when they don't give up on me. When people nurture what's good in me when they see it and gently confront what's bad when they see that. And who don't let me slink away from them even when I'm trying to stay in whatever rut I find myself in. That's what has worked in my life. So the question really is this, what if that's what God is doing? What if that's what God is doing? What if that's what His discipline really is? And what if one reason all of this change in the world around us is taking so long, it's, it's seeming to go backwards as much as it ever seems to go forwards, 
It's because we, all of us, not just us, but like everybody, we do all that we can to avoid God's constant presence. We do whatever we can to avoid confrontation with Him. We do everything we can to avoid His belief in us. Near the end of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes something pretty strange. Some of you probably have already like read down in the middle of that rant there and, and saw it. But they write something pretty strange to us, but it's something that I'm betting made a lot of sense to his or her Jewish readers once upon a time. They write this. They write, We have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who hear it beg that no further words be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, Moses, I'm trembling with fear. That's not the mountain you've come to. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. It's a weird passage, right? But listen. That first mountain here, the, the blazing one, that's Mount Sinai, right? It's the mountain where Moses once received the Ten Commandments while the Israelites who were fresh from slavery in Egypt camped and waited in the valley below it. And the mountain, the Bible says, was covered in this perpetual storm. And although Moses, the leader, who was like permitted to go up the mountain and talk to God, nobody else was allowed so much as to touch the mountain or they would die. And it is worth thinking about that. Imagine trying to not touch a mountain. Like, where does a mountain start or stop? Like, how do I know when I'm, like, too close? One imagines that this was terrifying. And not only that, but Moses goes up this mountain and stays for a long time. One imagines people assumed he was dead. In any case, this, this mountain, Sinai, is the mountain of God's moral correction, the first mountain of God's moral correction, of His path to holiness, of His molding and His shaping of people into what He means for them to be. And the first instrument of that molding and that shaping comes down from that mountain, and it's the law. It's a collection of rules which carry with them a penalty of death for their disobedience. And my point is that this is the God of fearsome discipline, of reproof. The God who you fear will despise you and destroy you. But the author says that is not the mountain that you have come to. That you have come to the other holy mountain in Judaism, which is Mount Zion. And what is Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion is the finished product. It's the completed kingdom. It's the symbol of God's perfect reign. And you are not camped at the bottom of this mountain. Instead, you are a citizen of it. 
You're surrounded by others. Angels walk the streets, and God's throne is this place where the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. And what is it the Jews believed about Jesus' death on the cross as the Messiah, according to the letter to the Hebrews? But what they believed is that His death covered them as the blood of the Passover lamb once covered over the Hebrews in Egypt, and it covers them with Jesus' righteousness. His perfection becomes their perfection. So, in the passage, who are those spirits of the righteous? The spirits of the righteous are you. You are. And what are you up to here in Zion? Well, you're being made perfect. Becoming. There is no need to fear God's presence here. Because God is here for your growth, and He's here for your benefit, and He's here for your healing. And so what then, at the end of that passage, is the author's challenge? Your challenge is, see to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. The twist tonight is that what we need to change is God's constant presence in our lives. His loving forgiveness, His encouragement of our becoming the people that He created us to be. And discipline is a scary word, but it doesn't have to be scary in practice because all it requires, at least according to this part of the text, is that we stop running from Him and we stop hiding from Him. We have to stop avoiding conversations. We have to stop avoiding the pain that might flow from being near God, because what we're really trying to do is we're trying to avoid having to change. And this, then, is the actionable step today, right? The challenge. Accept God's presence in your life. Accept it. He's making Himself visible to you all over the place. He's making Himself visible in the world that He's made and through the people that He's brought into your life as partners in your faith. Look at all that. Accept all of that. He's spoken to you already. He's still speaking through texts like this letter to the Hebrews. Read them. Listen. Even if it's hard, even if it's frustrating, let yourself be exposed to God's presence. And on that note, in a moment here, God's making Himself manifest in this symbolic sense to all of us, to us personally, in communion. Do you see communion that way? Do you see this as a way of accepting God's actual and constant presence in your life? There's the community that we built in league with each other here in this church. This is a way of experiencing God's presence, too. Can you let your guard down enough, tonight or any night, to really feel that? God is committed to working transformation in our lives, to bringing us by, by the hand to a way of holiness. 
we will see more change when we stop hiding from Him, when we accept His presence, not with dread, but with confidence in His self-sacrificing love for us and His commitment to us. So no more running. And then there's the miraculous news, right? If we learn anything from the last 2,000 years of waiting on the world to change, it's this. It's that God's not going to give up on us, even if we feel like He probably should or should have thousands, a thousand years ago at least. But it would seem, whether it's wise or not, that the God that we worship is a God who just isn't going to quit on all of this. He's never going to quit on it. He's going to keep pursuing us, even as we turn away and turn away and turn away. And when we tire of all of that running from Him, and we look back to kind of see how far we've gotten and how far we might have to go if we were to turn around, He shocks us every time by being right there. That's the good news, friends. The good news is that it's God who's unshakable. Unshakable. 